Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning, Sojourn, and welcome to our weekend gathering. If you are uh, new with us, my name is Matt. It's great to have uh, a couple of visitors with us uh, this morning. We're actually nearing the end of our fall series uh, called We Are the Church, where we have been looking at uh, what it means to be a church. As a, as a church plant, you kind of, uh, you're transient in nature. Our city is transient in nature, so it seems like every six months we have a different set of faces who are a part of us, and so we thought, man, this is a good time just to, like, what does it mean to be a church, and then what's our role in the church? What's our specific part and our responsibility within that? Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at witnessing and what it means to be a, a witness of this gospel message, which we have been entrusted with. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. We'll be looking at Acts 1, 1 through 11 here in just a few minutes. And the main point of our message this morning is to see our role, if you consider yourself in Christ, if you consider yourself a Christian, our role in witnesses of this message of the gospel to all peoples. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this critical call, the command, really, that Jesus has given every single one of us, every man, woman, and child who identifies himself in Christ as a Christ follower to be our witness to our city, it's here in Portland, uh, to our nation all over our country and to the world. Uh, we have some people who are part of us who are from other nations. We have some people who have gone to other nations. And we have some people who are in the process of going to other nations. April marks 110 years since the greatest ship of its time, the Titanic, crashed, killing more than 1,500 passengers. Now, there's been movies, there's been documentaries, there's been books that have come out so we can learn about, one, the story, but also of some of the individuals who were on that boat. One story I heard recently that I actually had not heard before involved a heroic pastor named John Harper who boarded the, the Titanic with his six-year-old daughter in order to preach at one of the greatest churches in America, Moody Church in Chicago. He was on his way there. He was actually going to accept the call to be their next pastor upon arrival. He was kind of going to visit their church to get to preach there, and he was going to be their next pastor. He was known for being an engaging preacher, an evangelistic preacher. That was kind of his, his passion was to see lives saved. Well, the Titanic hit the iceberg, and Harper led his daughter to a lifeboat. Now, he was a widower. His, his wife had passed away, and so as a single father, he most likely could have gotten on that lifeboat with his daughter, but he chose not to. He instead chose to get her to safety, but he forsook his own rescue. Instead, he, chooses, he chose to provide the masses, the people that were left on the boat, with the opportunity, one more chance to know Christ this side of eternity. He ran from person to person. He passionately telling others about Christ. As the water began to submerge, Harper was heard shouting, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. We can imagine this drama unfolding, right? The chaos as he's saying, get into the lifeboats. You need to at least have your life saved this side so you have another opportunity because he's thinking in terms of eternity. He was rejected by one man at the offer of salvation. So here's what Harper did. He had a life vest. And the man said, no, I've got no interest. He took off his life vest and said, here, you need this more than I do. And he gave his own life vest up for this individual. And up to the very last moment, Harper pled with individuals to give their lives to Jesus. The ship, as we all know, eventually disappeared beneath the water, leaving no realistic chance for rescue for those who were left out in the water. Harper himself struggled through hypothermia. He swam to as many people as he could, sharing the gospel. 
There was one individual who said he was floating on a piece of debris, and he came by Harper, and he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And the man said no, and he kept on floating. Well, the way the water worked, he floated back by Harper again. He rejected the first offer, but when he was given a second chance and he realized, man, there's miles of water beneath me, that most likely I'm not going to make it, he accepted Jesus Christ as a Savior in that moment. Then as Harper yielded to his watery grave, a few moments later, this new believer was actually rescued. And he, he returned to the lifeboat. One day he got a chance to share his story and his story, as he ended, simply stated, I'm the last convert of John Harper. Now, when the Titanic set sail, they had three delineations of classes, right? They had these kind of people, like the upper class, the middle class, and the lower class. And you could only go to certain parts of the boat depending on what access you had, what level you had. But immediately after this tragedy, the white star line in Liverpool, England, they placed a board outside its office. And they just had two classes of people. It was um, known to be saved and known to be lost. And so the owners of the Titanic, they simply reaffirmed what John Harper already knew. There are people who know Christ, who are saved, and they will spend eternity with God in heaven. And there are people, many others, who don't know Christ, who aren't saved, and will not spend eternity in heaven. And so for us today, here in October 2021, we're almost 110 years after the Titanic sank. May we be as zealous as Harper was with every opportunity to share Christ with those who are perishing around us. So as we turn to Acts this morning, we're going to look at the first 11 verses in three parts. First, we're going to see Luke's message continues, Luke being the author of the book of Acts, it's the second book. Second, we're going to see Jesus' ministry continue. And third, we're going to see the church's mission continue, which involves every single one of us. And so first, we're going to see the Luke's message continue. Elliot, if you want to go ahead and switch the slide. Verse 1, the first part of verse 1. Look there with me. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Luke begins by addressing this character, Theophilus. We're not told a whole lot about him, but he was probably already a Christian. And what Luke is doing here is he's just explaining, hey, I've already written one book. It's called Luke. I've named it after myself, the Gospel of Luke. And it's giving an eyewitness account of what actually happened in Jesus' life. And I want you to know about this because I want you to know uh, the reliable accounts of the beginning of Christianity. In other words, this is a reliable faith. You can follow Jesus. You can trust in these things. And I have recorded it here for you in my book, Luke. And, and so even for us today, when someone says, well, how do, you, how do you know that Jesus is real? How do you know the, the accounts of Jesus? We can point back uh, to really all of Scripture, but specifically the Gospels. And so these people walked with Jesus. They observed Jesus. They actually recorded this reliable account of the history of Jesus. That's why I always tell people. You might deny Jesus' death and resurrection and all that, but you can't deny that. There's this historical figure named Jesus, and he was either nuts and crazy for believing that he was God or he was actually God. But I don't think you can just erase that he was ever in existence. And so Luke's just saying, hey, I provide an eyewitness account, and now we're going to look at the second thing that he's going to do in this uh, opening chapter of Acts is that Jesus' ministry continues. Pick up in the second part of verse 1, and uh, we'll end up looking through verse 5. So he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Luke's first gospel, first book, the Gospel of Luke, it gives that account of what Jesus began to do. It gave an account of what Jesus began teaching. And so what he's suggesting is that that wasn't the end of the story, right? We know the Gospels, but that now the book of Acts, my second book that I'm giving to you, this is the continuation of what Jesus is going to do and teach in the world. And so in other words, the work is not done. 
right? We think about the gospel and you read it and you go, okay, close the book, it's done, like we celebrate Easter. Like most churches, at least it seems in our um, tradition or within the U.S., like we don't really have a big thing about Pentecost Sunday, but um, my, my wife, Andrea, as you know, grew up in a Pentecostal church, and so they always celebrated Pentecost Sunday, and it's even got me wondering, like, why don't we celebrate this? Like we celebrate Easter, and then we kind of leave it at that, and then we're like, okay, well, we'll see you back whenever um, Advent rolls around again, and then we'll do Easter again. But that the Holy Spirit actually comes, so it's the continuation of what Jesus already started in the Gospels. In other words, his work is not done, but it's only getting started, and we, the church, have a huge role to play in that. And that's what I want us to see this morning. So he continues in verse 2. He says, Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So the day where he was taken up, it refers to Jesus' ascension into heaven. So the beginning of Acts actually parallels the ending of Luke's gospel. And Jesus is pointing to chapter 2, which we're not going to look at this morning, but he's pointing to the coming of the Holy Spirit, that this was promised that the Holy Spirit would come, and the Holy Spirit would come upon believers of Jesus. And so he says this phrase, through the Holy Spirit, means that Jesus gave, gave instructions and commands to his disciples. But the Holy Spirit accompanied his teaching, and the Holy Spirit empowered his disciples so that they would rightly understand it and obey it. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't actually understand these things. We may even think this morning, and we're going to unpack this a little bit, this idea of being a witness, right? You, if you live in Portland, you likely know a lot of people who don't know Jesus, and hopefully you're being a faithful witness to them, but we need the Holy Spirit to come down and, and empower our words and empower our lives and call and draw those people to himself. Now, if you know much about Jesus' ministry during his ministry, there's actually no reference to the Holy Spirit being on anyone except who? Jesus. Quick sampling of Luke, we see that the Spirit descended upon him at his baptism. The Spirit filled him as he returned from the Jordan. The Spirit led him both in and out of the wilderness. The Spirit rested upon him in the sermon at Nazareth. And so what Luke is doing then, he's emphasizing the same Spirit which descended on Jesus, which filled Jesus, which led Jesus and rested upon Jesus and his ministry. And I want us to get this. It would also empower the apostles and us for our ministry and our witness. In other words, it's not in our own strength. It's not in our own power, but it's in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that rested on Jesus in which we go out as a witness to the world. Now, Jesus taught them during his early life, and he would continue to instruct them through the presence of the Spirit once they experienced the Spirit through the presence of Jesus. And so up until this point in this passage where we are, the apostles, these close followers of Jesus, had experienced the Spirit through the presence of Jesus. In other words, Jesus was in the flesh with them. And it was through Jesus and his life that he was, they were able to experience the Spirit. And after Pentecost, they would experience Jesus then through the presence of the Spirit. So it's almost like they flip, they flip roles. They're both present at, at the same time, but it's almost like they flip roles once the presence of the Spirit had come down. He continues in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus appeared. And I, want to, I want us to catch this because we're in a, a city that would deny Jesus or question Jesus. Jesus actually appeared between his death and his ascension to his disciples many times. And he gave them many proofs to strengthen their faith. I think one of the, the most simplest yet most profound forms is eating with them. Like Jesus sat down and had meals with them. Like, I know that seems so simple, but that would be profound to go like, no, I actually had a meal. Like, we broke bread together. 
And we, we got to share food together. We got to share a drink together. And it wasn't like he drank it and it just fell on the floor. Like he actually consumed the drink and the food that he had given us. And so this is one of the distinguishing factors that sets Christianity apart from any other religion, any other world faith, is that Jesus actually is alive. This, I couldn't help but think of hip-hop artist Shy Lin. Some of you know who that is. Some of you may not. He's got a song that came out a number of years called Jesus is Alive. Now, we actually happen to have a couple of hip-hop spoken word guys in the audience with us this morning, but I didn't know they were coming. Otherwise, I would have maybe had them come and do this part for me. I'm not going to rap it for us, but I'm going to read these lyrics from this song. He says, Elvis is dead. Picasso is dead. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin are dead. Marilyn Monroe is dead. However, Jesus is alive. He says, Brando is dead. James Brown is dead. Princess Di and John Lennon are dead. Biggie and Pac are dead. However, Jesus is alive. He says, Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Emmanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. He says, Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Haile Selassie are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. He says, Nero is dead. Constantine is dead. Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun are dead. Alexander the Great is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Napoleon is dead. Leo, I'm not sure I say that, is dead. Che Guevara and Henry IV are dead. Saddam Hussein is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Pharaoh is dead. Cyrus is dead. Darius and Seneca are dead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. However, Jesus is alive. He says Caesar is dead. Herod is dead. Anna, Sapphires, and Judas are dead. Pontius Pilate is dead. However, Jesus is alive. Now, this song came out a number of years ago, so it's going to add it more and more and more. But the point is that Jesus is the only man to ever walk this earth who claimed to be God, who gave proof. He then never sinned. He then went to the cross and died for our sin, and he came back to life so that we can all say, what? Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Throughout the Gospels, the main theme of Jesus' preaching, as we see that second part of that verse, was this idea of the kingdom of God. Right? We went through a series um, last year. It took us seven months, Kingdom Manifesto. It was all about the kingdom of God. But this phrase only occurs six times in the book of Acts. But in spite of the few references, God's kingdom is still a very central theme to Acts. Significantly, if you study this book, which my plan in the next year is that we'll go through Acts here at Sojourn, is the beginning and the end of Acts actually start with this theme of the kingdom of God. The book begins, chapter 1, verse 3, and it ends, chapter 28, verse 31, with that theme. So what does that indicate? It's indicated that the proclamation of the gospel in Acts represents the beginning of fulfillment of God's kingdom promises. This promise that he talked about all through the gospels. The kingdom always meaning that God's reign and rule had been the main subject of his teaching. And so when we say we want it to be in Portland as it is in heaven and we want it to reflect the kingdom, that's what we want it to reflect. God's reign and rule here. Now if we look around, it's not that right now. But we are representatives of that. Well, this is part of the message that we have to help it make it look like the kingdom here, albeit a poor reflection. And so in that vein of thought, if the church can take up the message of Jesus as recorded in the gospel, we are to make it part of our own. And that our, our city will in a small way reflect that as we unite with the church, not just Sojourn, but the church of Portland. In verse 4, Jesus can, it says, while, he, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. And so Jesus, he instructs the apostles, stay where you are until you receive the promise of the Father. He's referring to the power and to the, the gift of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. 
which we'll see in just a few verses, is his instructions will be to go all over the world and to proclaim this message, but not yet. He says, I want you to, right now to stay and to wait. And he goes on to talk about baptism, verse 5. He says, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, we see the baptism of water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit are contrasted here. Now, baptism literally means to be immersed in water. That's why at, at Sojourn, I would argue that we do a biblical uh, version or form of baptism. A few months ago, we had a baptism in the summer, and we didn't just sprinkle water, and we didn't just get a water bottle. We submerged a person underneath. They were immersed in the water, and then they came up. Because baptism is an outward sign of an inner change. When we baptize someone, it shows they've gone from death to life. And so when they go down into the water, they're going down to the grave. And when they come out of the water, they're literally coming up to represent their new life that they've been given in Jesus. Now, when the term baptism is applied to the Spirit, it refers to the pouring out of the Spirit from God, and it's associated with the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to be careful here, and this is not really the main point of this message, so I'm just going to kind of touch on this and highlight it real briefly. But throughout the book of Acts, what we see is new converts, those who are becoming Christ followers, they experience three things. They experience repentance, they experience baptism, and they experience the gift of the Spirit. All three are essential elements of conversion. Contrary to what some traditions teach, the book of Acts shows no set pattern in which these three elements appear. Because we actually see examples where the Spirit can come before baptism, at the moment of baptism, or sometime after baptism. Right? So some traditions have gotten kind of hung up on when it happens or how it happens and what accompanies it. But let's just for our sake just say that those three elements are present and part of conversion. And then we're going to see the third part. This is kind of our key part of our message this morning. Is that the church's mission will continue. Verses 6 through 11. Verse 6 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So the disciples are they're wondering, like, Jesus, are you going to come back and restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they had concluded from his resurrection and the promise of the Spirit that this messianic era had dawned and that the final salvation of Israel was imminent. And so this question actually reflects a Jewish hope. And their, their hope was that God would establish his rule in such a way that the people of Israel be freed from their enemies, especially the Romans, and established as a nation in which no other people would be, uh, which other peoples would be then submissive. And so they were kind of looking at it in, in military terms in a way too. That, that this meant that that the restoration of um, Israel as a, um, a military and political kingdom, and they would be kind of the top ones. That they would be in charge. And we kind of saw this happen numerous times throughout the Old Testament. This is what they longed for and hoped for. But this isn't actually what Jesus was referring to. And we'll see that Jesus will correct them once we get to verse 8, not by rejecting their question. He doesn't reject the question that they offer, but by telling them that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit, not in order to triumph over Roman armies, but in order to spread the good news of the gospel throughout the world. In other words, the return is in God's timing. In the meantime, there are things, key things for his followers to do. And so Jesus is going to answer their question in verse 7. He comes in. And he says, it is not for you to know, apologize for the feedback, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, Jesus comes in and kind of answers them by saying, hey guys, it's none of your business. It's not for you to know. It is for me and the Father to know. And Jesus urged them to refrain from speculation. Once again, there's traditions, there's groups who throughout history have kind of said, let's rally together. We've kind of got this holy haven. Let's not worry about those us. We are, we've kind of got the, the good stuff and we're saying, let's just wait around and do nothing until Jesus returns. 
But Jesus said, refrain from speculation because he wants them to remain faithful to the task. In other words, Jesus has given them a job. He's given them a task to do, and he wants them to remain faithful to that. He says, don't worry about these things. Worry about what I've, I've commanded you to do. Now, what's that task? To spread the message. The task is to be a witness, a witness of Jesus and his message, the witness of the good news to help bring the kingdom and usher in the kingdom. And that's the same task that we are to be busy about doing today. As Christ followers, we are given this task to be a witness to those around us, to those in our city, our nation, our world. And Jesus comes in, he's going to define that task for them in verse 8, which is the key verse for our message this morning, and it's the key verse for really the entire book of Acts, Acts 1.8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So I want us to see in this verse three parts of a witness. First is the people who witness. And the people who witness is every single believer, every single Christ follower is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so if you are in Christ, if you consider yourself a Christian, if you've attached your life to Jesus, then this verse answers this question, who is to be a witness? Every single believer. And if that's you, then that includes you this morning. It is your job as a Christian to witness. It is your job to take this message of the good news, of the gospel, to your roommates, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to our city, to our nation, to our world. We are not to be spectators. We're not to be those sitting on the sidelines or sitting on the bench. I think about the 10-year-olds that I coach in soccer. Every single week, we've got three or four kids on the sideline. And every 10 minutes, I rotate them because it's recreation and all their parents pay the same amount and they all want to play. And those kids are so antsy on the sidelines. They can't wait to get back in the game when I take them out. Coach, why'd you take me out? Coach, can I get back in? Can I get back in? Like, I want to play. I want to play. That's how we should be. If we feel like we're on the sidelines or we found ourselves in a season of hardship or struggling or doubt, no seasons will come. We should find ourselves going, God, can I get back in? Can I get back in the game? I want to play. I want to go out there and share. I want to do it. And the reality is where you are right now, presently, this day, you might go, why do I live here? Right? Cortland's got a, a mess right now on our hands. I know some people still love it. Some people are leaving. But wherever you are right now, you may go, I'm going here in the future. But where you are right now, you are called to be a witness. You're not called to be a spectator. You're not called to wait around and let others do this, Right? Think about Sunday mornings even. We, we kind of delegate some different tasks. Some people set up the, the instruments and the mics and things that you see up here. Some people brew coffee and do water. We kind of delegate it. This is not a role that we delegate. Every single one of us is called to be a share, a witness of this message that Jesus has given us. And why is that? Because the same Holy Spirit that came down and rested upon the apostles has come down and rested upon me and you. We have the empowering of the Spirit of God to go and to do this. When I look back on the Titanic story, one of the most tragic aspects of that rescue, of the efforts of the Titanic, is the lifeboats. You may not know this, or maybe you do, but the lifeboats were reported to only be half full. That means a lot more people could have been rescued. But why weren't they? It was a mix of poor planning, improper training, and selfishness. And it led to only about half the amount of people who could have been saved actually being saved. And so when I thought about that and looked at this week, I said, may we not be like those who are in lifeboats at half capacity going, well, we've got salvation, we've got Jesus, we're not worried about the rest. Now, I don't think, you know, if we give a Sunday school answer, none of us are going to say that. We're always saying we care about the people around us, we care about the world, but functionally, I think a lot of the church lives in such a way that we're in the lifeboats, and whether it's improper training or poor planning or just selfishness, we don't really care about those around us. I hate to say it, but that is one of the things that appears within the church. 
And we neglect the salvation of others because we have it. We've got this thing and, you know, it's like we say, well, we don't want to offend them and we don't want to do this. I'm like, they're out in icy water about to sink to their ultimate grave and death and separation from God. Yet we're worried about offending them in some way. The second part is the power of a witness. Okay? It's not in our own strength. It's not in our own power. Otherwise, you'll get red in the face like I do. The power of the witness is the Holy Spirit. So we have the power, this authority that would come down upon every believer. It doesn't say if. It says when the Holy Spirit arrived. And the Holy Spirit has arrived. And the disciples understood that this power to both be the power to preach the gospel effectively. We need that. And also the power through the Holy Spirit to work miracles confirming the message. And this powerful new work of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost brought several beneficial factors or results. More effectiveness in witness and ministry. Right? Imagine trying to do what we, what we do now without the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So more effectiveness in witness and ministry. Effective proclamation of the gospel. It brought power for victory over sin. It brought power for victory over Satan and demonic forces. And it brought a wide distribution of gifts for ministry. And so if we want to have a bold proclamation, then we need to live and operate by the power provided to us in the Spirit. This morning as I was praying over this message, and just, God, I want your words to be heard, not my words. It kind of hit me that there, there was a season of my life I was exploring different traditions and different churches and different faiths. And there's this, this stream, and I, I know you guys might think I pick on them sometimes, but there's a stream that kind of taught, like, if you don't speak in tongues, then you don't have the Holy Spirit that you don't have evidence of the Holy Spirit. So I thought there was something wrong with me for a long time. Now, I believe that this is a real thing and that it can't happen, but I'll go and share, I've never spoken in tongues. I saw it and said, God, give it to me, but God hasn't given that to me. So I thought, man, I don't have the Holy Spirit. And there are traditions that would teach that I do not have the Holy Spirit. I rebuke you in Jesus' name, and I strongly disagree with you. But it hit me this morning when I looked at this verse. One of the signs, not the only sign, but one of the signs that you have the Holy Spirit in your life is that you are a witness. Because said, when the Holy Spirit rested upon them, then you will go and share and so in a very real way, if you are not sharing the message of the gospel, if you're hoarding it for yourselves, then between you and God this morning, I would wrestle and go, is the Holy Spirit not in me? Because that might imply something even deeper. Why am I not sharing? Why am I not wanting to do these things? And the third thing is those in need of a witness, the world. Back in verse 6, Jesus corrected the disciples' questions with commission. He said this time would be a time for them of witnessing for the gospel. And that the scope of their witness would not just be for Israel, but actually for the world. And then verse 8 places the disciples' question in proper perspective. The restoration of the kingdom involves a worldwide mission. It begins with the Spirit's power, which stands behind and drives the witness to Jesus. And this theme verse here in verse 8 provides a rough outline of the entire book when it says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When it says Jerusalem, it's not by accident that it came first. In Luke's gospel, Jerusalem was central. Because we see from the temple scenes of its infancy, the narrative of the long central journey to Jerusalem. To Jesus' passion in the city that killed its prophets. And so if you study Jesus and Luke, the story of Jesus led to Jerusalem and the story of the church led from Jerusalem. Second, we see Judea and Samaria. And they're probably taken together, probably meant to be taken together. Judah was understood in the sense of the Davidic kingdom, which would include the coastal territories and Galilee as well. Samaria would include the Judea in the broader sense, but it is mentioned separately because of its non-Jewish consistency. In other words, it wasn't for, for, for only Jews, it was for Jew and non-Jew. And then finally, to the ends of the earth taken to be as Rome since the story of Acts ends in that city. 
But we see in the final verse of Acts, Acts 28, 31, with Paul preaching without hindrance in Rome, it suggests that the story has not reached its final destination. The witness continues. And who does it continue with? It continues with us. The witness continues with us. And the scope of the task the apostles were given and the scope of the task that we've been given is worldwide. Yes, it begins with Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and it stretches to the ends of the earth. The end of Acts does not mark the completion of the task proposed here. It's simply a completion of its first phase. Some of you may have heard of this church planting network called Acts 29. It's, it's an, a church planting network that built its whole idea and its whole identity off after this role. The Acts, there is no Acts 29. If you're looking in your Bible, there is no Acts 29. But their whole idea is that the continuation of the mission is with us and that we are Acts 29, that we are living at Acts 29 because we are given this commission and we are called to go and to preach in, in all of the world. And so if you've ever wondered, is there hope for our city? Is there hope for Portland? You know, I've wondered that a lot in the last year. Is there salvation for our city, for our nation, for our world? There is. But part of that solution is you. You know, we pray for the Holy Spirit to come, and I prayed that in my opening prayer, and the revival would break out. Absolutely. But when you go to your neighbor, when you go to your coworker, the Holy Spirit, if it's resting upon you, the Holy Spirit is in you, then the Holy Spirit is going to these places. The Holy Spirit is in our city already because you are here. And the Holy Spirit can break the bondage and chains of Portland. The Holy Spirit can break the polarization of our nation. And there is no such thing as an unreached country. There are unreached people groups, but there's no such thing as an unreached country because the Holy Spirit can break into any place. You hear these nations go, they don't have this. The Holy Spirit can break into that place. And before we make any excuses for ourselves, why don't we witness? We are all evangelists for something. For the things that we love. It might be our significant other. It might be our kids, our hobbies, our job, something else. But we too should be just as passionate, more passionate about Jesus who saved us and who want to offer that hope of salvation to others. You think about when, when uh, someone gets engaged. I have a feeling some of this room is going to get engaged sometime soon. There's my prophetic word for the next six months. Um, but when somebody gets engaged, what do they do? Do they, do they like hide the ring in their pocket? Do they walk around like this and don't say anything? But no, they're like gushing, right? They're like, look at this. Look at my rock. I got engaged. We're getting married. They're all excited about it. And so in the same way, we have received salvation. But why do we want to put our hands in our pockets and kind of shrug like this and not share it with anyone? Like we should be wanting to open our mouths and say, look, I know life is a mess and I know we live in this brokenness, but there is a hope and there is a better way. And let me tell you about it. Hmm. I'm going to skip verses 9 through 11. We're going to look at it for a second time. I'm going to skip through that. But basically, we see that Jesus ascends into heaven. He's going, to, he's going to come back one day in that same way. And, and the only thing I'll mention without reading is that we see the apostles kind of left looking up. They're like stargazers, which isn't what they were called to do. They weren't called to stand there and look. They were called to go and be active and to be witnesses. But I think sometimes we find ourselves stargazing. We're like, what do I do, God? God's like, have you, have you not heard my word? And people say, I need a word from the Lord. And God's like, open my book. I've told you what to do. Why are you looking at the stars and just gazing? Go out and obey this and go and, go and do it. Arthur Pearson, he, he ends a book on the, the idea of the Holy Spirit in this passage with this stirring challenge. He says, Church of Christ, the records of these acts of the Holy Ghost have never reached completeness. This is the one book which has no proper close because it awaits for new chapters to be added so fast and so far as the people of God shall reinstate the blessed Spirit in his holy seat of control. It intentionally is left with no conclusion. 
This is that series on Netflix you finish, and you're like, they better make another season, and sometimes they cancel it. And you're like, what? what? What's going to happen? And you've got to make it up in your mind. But this has no proper close because we are the close. We are the continuation of this. We are now living out the book in our day and time as we have been called by God as a church to go and to witness to Portland, to Oregon, to our nation, and to our world. And one day we will be around the throne of Jesus, praise God, as Revelation 7, 9 through 12 describes. This is a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 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 And on that glorious day, as we're on our faces, worshiping for Jesus, we will not wonder how we got there, but we'll be reminded that someone witnessed to us and that we heard the message of Jesus and the proclamation of salvation and we accepted that call which allowed us to be in this now moment in the future surrounded by peoples from all tribes, tongues, and nations. And so may we be the ones who also in this lifetime share and be witnesses to others so that others around us will be joined in that moment as well as we all join in worshiping God on our faces, as we worship our King of kings and our Lord of lords. Church, may that be the call of our witness. Do we live in a hard city? Absolutely. Is it challenging? Absolutely. Do you, do you think Matt does this perfect? You might, but no, I don't. Do I get nervous talking to my neighbors? Yeah, sure. Can I talk to about anything else that seems easier? Absolutely. But I want us to be reminded that we're called to be a witness. This isn't an optional thing. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Which one are you? Which one are you? So church, I'm going to pray for us. Ben's going to come back up and we're going to respond to worship. Maybe something that was said from the word this morning you're wrestling through. Maybe, maybe you find yourself going, I, I don't see myself as a witness. Or maybe, man, it's been a long time since I've shared this with anyone. We're not here to judge. We're here to help encourage. We're here to help rally the troops together. Say, let's get together and let's be obedient to what Jesus has called us to do and see this as a primary role for every single one of us who consider ourselves in Christ. Let me pray for us, church. Holy Spirit, we thank you for coming down and resting upon us. We thank you for empowering us as your church, as your people to go and to preach this message of Jesus and the kingdom coming, God, to our city, our nation, to our world. God, there are people groups out there who still have never heard the name of Jesus. God, may your church not be ones who are huddled up in lifeboats just waiting for you to come back and looking at the sky for you to come back down. But God, may we be active. May it not be said in our lifetime that, that people groups didn't hear the name of Jesus because we refused to go. God, I know that you're, you are stirring some within our midst. I know that you're calling some from with, out of our congregation to eventually go, but God, may you multiply that to those online, to those here in person, God, to other churches in our city, other, nation, or other uh, churches across our nation, God. We know that your heart is for these people, but we also know that part of the way that you are providing the, a witness for those people is through us, through your church. And so God, may we be obedient to that. 
God, let us know that there's grace for what we have and be obedient, but today can be a new marker. Today can be a day that we can look back and remember that we wanted to be obedient to you. And so even this week, God, may you bring people to our minds, to our hearts, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, those we, we do hobbies with. And God, may we be bold in our witness and our proclamation of your gospel message, which you have entrusted us with. It's in your name, by your power. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.